John 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is the witness of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny. And he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. They said then to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Dear Father, we ask that you would, you would help us to set aside from our thinking all the other things that have been going on this week and that we would be mindful of what your Word declares to us here. That we'd take a hard look at this man, John the Baptist, this faithful prophet, and consider what his life and ministry has to say to us, and that we would would reckon, Lord, with what he declares to be true of your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to ask you for a moment to think about how most of your conversations with unbelievers tend to go. Some of you may find it very difficult to talk to people about Jesus Christ with those that you encounter day by day in the workplace and in stores and whomever you bump into. Others among you uh, may find it a lot easier. Some of you just talk about Jesus all the time. And I suspect that most of us in this room fall somewhere between those two categories. But wherever you are on that spectrum, John the Baptist has a lot to teach you and to teach me. You may think that that 
this man, as he's described in this passage, is about as far from anything that you would consider yourself capable of doing as you can imagine. Maybe he's as far as you'd like to imagine yourself being capable of doing. But John is an amazing figure. And as we'll see, he is the man that Jesus declares to be the greatest man ever born among women. Uh, excluding himself, of course. God does not require all of us to live the way John the Baptist lived. Any more than he requires us to do all of the seemingly crazy things that he required of the Old Testament prophets at various points. John is an unusual person. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was in his mother's womb. But every one of us who cares to be a witness of the light of Jesus Christ needs to pay close attention to what God says in and through this man and about this man. We have a lot to learn about what is it that makes us powerfully useful to God. The most important lessons in the passage are, of course, about Jesus, not about John. We're going to look at this morning at what John says about himself and what John says about Jesus Christ. And just so that there'll be no confusion, from this point forward in this message, when I use the name John, I'll be talking about John the Baptist, unless I, unless I specifically say that I'm talking about John the Apostle who wrote this Gospel. By the time John came onto the scene, it had been more than 400 years since God had sent a prophet to speak to Israel on his behalf. This was the first time since Israel's 400-year captivity in Egypt that God had been so silent for so long. And now John shows up at the Jordan River wearing a camel hair robe and a leather belt, no doubt homemade, having a diet of locusts and wild honey, calling the Jews to repent and declaring that the kingdom of God was at hand. Many Jews in Jerusalem and in Judea began to come down to the Jordan River to see what this man was saying. And many of them were being baptized by John. The Jewish leaders, the, the, the temple authorities in Jerusalem, caught wind of all this and, and they figured, well, they better check this guy out. So they sent some of their minions down to the Jordan to have a conversation with John. That conversation focused on three people. Three people for whom the nation of Israel had been waiting. The Christ, Elijah, and one simply called the prophet. The word Christ, as most of you know, is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word Messiah. It means anointed one. The coming of God's Messiah, the promised king in the line of David, who would usher in the kingdom of of God on earth pervaded the Old Testament prophets. If you've ever heard the, the very famous Hallelujah Chorus 
from Handel's Oratorio Messiah, and who hasn't, right? You've heard some of the exact words of those Old Testament prophets testifying of the coming of Messiah. The Jews had been anticipating the coming of the promised Messiah for many, many generations. John the Baptist simply said emphatically, I am not the Christ. The second person that these inquisitors asked John about was Elijah. They asked him, are you Elijah? Now, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet who had faithfully called Israel and her king to turn away from their abominable practices and from their apostate worship of of pagan gods like Baal and to turn their hearts back to the one true God. In 2 Kings 1.8, interestingly, the prophet Elijah is described as a hairy man, or perhaps that should be translated a man with a hairy garment. And then it says he had a leather belt around his waist. Elijah's departure from earth was unique. 2 Kings 2 says that a chariot of fire came out, came down from heaven and Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind into heaven while his protege Elisha watched. It's pretty impressive stuff. But why were the Jews in John's day expecting Elijah to show up again? Well, actually, that expectation made perfect sense. In Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse 1, God says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. So they were looking for a prophet who would usher in the return of Messiah. And they thought it was going to be Elijah. The very last prophecy in the Old Testament is in the last two verses of Malachi. God says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. The fact is, When these men sent by the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem asked John if he was Elijah, not only did they have a good reason for asking him that question, they weren't very far from the truth. In Luke chapter 1, an angel appeared to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, before John had even been conceived. The angel told Zacharias that God was going to give a son to his wife Elizabeth who had been barren up to that point and then that angel told Zacharias to name that son John how many of you can say your name came directly from God and then he told Zacharias John will be great in the sight of the Lord he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he is yet in his mother's womb and he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God And it is He who will go as a forerunner before Him, before the Lord, 
in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. These are the same things that the prophet Malachi had spoken on God's behalf. John the Baptist was sent by God in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for the coming Messiah by preparing the hearts of men for his arrival. John's calling was to set the stage for one much greater than himself. In Matthew 11, Jesus said this to the multitudes about John. He said to these people, he said, What did you go out to the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is repeating the words of Malachi, of God through Malachi. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Three verses later, Jesus says, and if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That last statement is a clue. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus uses that phrase over and over when he's speaking in parables in the Gospels. That statement means you need to look carefully at what I'm saying. It's not something that that a perfunctory glance is going to give you the meaning. Just as Jesus will fulfill the Old Testament promises of David, King David's return to rule over his people, Elijah, uh, John the Baptist, fulfills the Old Testament promise of Elijah's coming to make straight the way of the Lord. Jesus is not David. Jesus is greater than David. John the Baptist is not Elijah. John is greater than Elijah. When the Jews sent from the Pharisees asked John if he was Elijah, John simply answered, I am not. And he was telling the truth. But he could have said with perfect legitimacy, yeah, I'm the one that the prophet Malachi was talking about, and God says you need to pay attention to what I'm telling you. But he said just three words. I am not. Finally, they asked, these men asked John if he was the prophet. And they were referring to the one that God had promised to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, when God said, I will raise up for for Israel a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to to my words that he will speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. 
the Jews were still waiting for that promised prophet. When they asked John, are you the prophet? He answered with one word, no. Now these temple authorities, the the representatives of the temple authorities knew that if they returned with nothing in their hand except denials from John the Baptist, that wouldn't pass very well with those that they had to answer to. So they straight up asked John, who are you? So we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And I believe we need to pay a lot of attention to how John handled that question. They asked as directly as they possibly could for John to tell them about himself and everything that he said from that point forward was about Jesus. Up to this point, John's answers had been five words, three words, and one word. How many conversations do you have with people where as the conversation progresses, they say less and less about themselves? Now, John begins talking about the one who's coming. He was sent by God to announce, and now he becomes much more verbose. Quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And that's exactly what John then proceeds to do, to make straight the way of the Lord. All right, so looking back, what does John say about himself? He says two things. He tells these men who he isn't, and he tells these men what God sent him to do. Period. That's worth a little bit of reflection, don't you think? These men next and finally asked John, why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet? And John said, I baptize in water. That's the sum total of what he said about himself in answer to that question. Then he says, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not even worthy to untie. John's conversation with these men ends at verse 28. And I believe verse 29 actually picks up the narrative the day after John baptized Jesus. The other three Gospels do a fine job of telling us what happened on the day of Jesus' baptism. So John doesn't repeat those accounts here. But I want to quickly take a look at just what just one of those Gospels says about that day so that we'll have in mind the miraculous event that occurred when Jesus was baptized. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Luke 3, verses 21 and 22. Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven opened Heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in bodily form like a dove and a voice came out of heaven. Thou art my beloved Son. In Thee I am well pleased. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit together directly bore witness to the identity of God the Son at His baptism. 
John 1 verse 29 then picks, and, and bear that in mind, that's going to be important as we proceed. John 1 29 picks up the narrative, I believe, the next day when Jesus again approaches John. The next six verses are filled with John the Baptist's witness to the light. His proclamation to the multitudes concerning this man, Jesus. And I find more Christology packed into these six verses than I find anywhere else in the whole Bible in such a short space. In verse 29, John saw Jesus approaching. Again, by the way, Christology is the doctrine of Christ. It's probably evident. But verse 29, John saw Jesus approaching again and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is God's Lamb. He's the sacrifice that God provided to pay for the sins of men. He's not like one of the lambs in the Old Testament sacrifices taken from a sinful man's own flock to be offered up to God. This is the Lamb of God offered up by God for men. The one that all the others foreshadowed. There are many Old Testament passages I could point to to help explain how John's mostly Jewish audience should have understood these words. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A couple of passages you might want to check out in that regard are Genesis 22. The second greatest interception intercession in the Bible. The first greatest being the cross. Or you might want to look at the narrative of the Passover plague in Exodus chapter 12 and see what the blood of the Lamb accomplished on that day. But by far the clearest prophecy in the Old Testament regarding God's Lamb, the perfect Lamb sent to pay for the sins of Israel, is the amazing end of mankind, is the amazing prophecy of the suffering servant of God in Isaiah 52.13-53.12. to The servant of God who was led like a lamb to slaughter. Why? To bear upon Himself the iniquity of us all. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our well-being fell upon Him and by our by His scourging, we are healed. Him for us. The Old Testament contains both foreshadowings and direct prophecies of God's Lamb. The perfect sacrifice that God would send to bear upon Himself the penalty we deserved. The One who would die in our place. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John declared Jesus to be that spotless Lamb of God. I want you to think back to the five themes that we looked at in the prologue. There were six. One was creation, but that was dealt with exhaustively in the prologue in the first 18 verses. The other five continue throughout the Gospel of John at different points. They have to do with Jesus' relationship to five things. Time, God, life, light, and man. When John identified Jesus 
as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's saying this man is the life. Leviticus 17.11, when God instructed Israel not to consume the blood of the sacrifices, he said, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement for your souls. And then he said, I, even I, have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your lives. The Lamb of God who took our place is our life. There is no other. And John says, He is a man. (laughs) Verse 30. He says, This is He on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. There's time, right? There's Jesus' relationship to time. He always existed. He's a man, but He's above men. All men. He says, Jesus has a higher rank than I because He existed before me. Now, John said a couple of verses earlier that He was not even worthy to untie the strap of Jesus, of of Jesus' sandal. That was the task, by the way, of a house steward, a slave. So John says, compared to Jesus, I'm lower than a slave. What did Jesus say about John? He was the greatest man ever born of women. What does that tell you about the rest of us? If John is lower than a slave, we are lower than John. When Jesus is our reference point. He is above all. Light. Verse 31, John says, I did not recognize Him. It's a very interesting confession. We'll come back to it. I did not recognize Him, but in order that He might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And that word manifested means illumined, unveiled so that it's visible. John is saying to these people, I didn't know who this man was any more than you did. I would never have recognized Him. But God sent me here to baptize in order that Jesus would be manifested to Israel. (laughs) That His light would be shown. He's saying the reason God sent Him, John the Baptist, to baptize men was so that God would use that stage to unveil to Israel the fact that this is the One. The Father and the Spirit both bore witness of Him to John the Baptist so John could bear witness of Him to the multitudes. Time. Life. Light. God. John said Jesus is the one who baptizes men in the Holy Spirit. That is declared in all four Gospels. Jesus is the one who baptizes men in the Holy Spirit. God the Son sends the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit to man. That's going to be developed very well in chapters 14 and 16 later. And Jesus is the Son of God. In the last verse of this passage, John says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
One day earlier, God the Father and God the Spirit had told John that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. The Lamb of God is the Son of God. The sacrifice that God provided for the sins of men is His beloved Son. So just in six verses, John 1 verses 29 to 34, John declares that Jesus always existed, that He's a man, that He's above all men, that He's the Savior of all of men, that He is the one who baptizes men in the Holy Spirit, and that He is the Son of God. That's pretty comprehensive theology of Christ in six verses, wouldn't you say? It's a very efficient proclamation of Jesus. I'd like to consider with you what you and I need to learn from this passage that talks about John the Baptist and his ministry, the first part of his ministry. First of all, of course, God commands all men to believe what this man was proclaiming about Jesus Christ. And God intends for all of us who are His children to carry on the same task that John was performing or doing here. And that is, He came to bear witness to the light, and that's what we're supposed to do, right? God says, don't hide your light under a bushel. Let it be seen. He says, you are salt, you are light. That applies to every Christian. We're not all evangelists by spiritual gift. Ephesians chapter 4 makes it clear that the gift of evangelist, the role of evangelist, is given by God, by the Spirit, to certain people in the body of Christ. But we are all witnesses to the light. We are all to proclaim Christ by our words and by our lives. So what can you and I learn from the example of John the Baptist? A lot. <laughs> Let's start with John's humility. If you look at the life of John the Baptist, you cannot avoid the conclusion that you're not here for you. You're here for Jesus. You're not here to be admired for your wardrobe or your grooming or your good looks. Imagine what would happen if that became less of a priority to many Christians. You probably won't have to eat a lot of honey-covered grasshoppers, but you're not guaranteed great meals. You're not here to have a soft and comfortable life. You are certainly not here to find yourself. You're not here to build a great reputation for yourself among men. If the life of John and the unparalleled praise that Jesus Himself gave to John tell us anything, it is that our reputation in the eyes of God is inversely proportional to our reputation in the eyes of unbelieving men. You can't have both because one contradicts the other. You're not here so that others will have the benefit of your marvelous opinions. You're not here to have control over your circumstances. You're not here to be protected from persecution for Christ's sake. Do you think Jesus could have delivered John the Baptist 
from the hands of Herod before Herod had his head removed? Jesus could heal every disease. He could raise men from the dead. He said in Gethsemane that He could call 12 legions of angels down from heaven. Do you think He couldn't have stopped Herod from killing this prophet? You might want to give that some thought. Because He certainly could have. Can you imagine what the conversations of Christians would be like if we all had as little to say about ourselves and our lot in life and as much to say about Jesus Christ as boldly as John did. You and I are here to bear witness to the light and whatever, beloved, whatever we must give up of the things we can't keep in the first place is more than worth it if our eyes are fixed on the worthiness of the one we are here to proclaim. Do you think anyone had to twist John's arm to get him to say this stuff? He was filled with the Spirit of God. He was chomping at the bit to speak of the one that he was sent to announce. And when he finally got to see him and he got to to behold the testimony of the Father and the Spirit to the Son, do you think anyone had to twist his arm to get him to talk about Jesus? John's humility and John's boldness. Let's talk about John's authority. You and I are here to bear witness to the light. What gives us the authority to tell anyone what's true of Jesus? It's an important question, isn't it? The answer is the same for you and me as it was for John the Baptist. It's simple. Like John, we behold God's witness to His Son... And we then bear that witness, God's witness, to mankind. Look at what John said. He said, I was like you guys. First he said, by the way, he said to the Jewish, the guys sent by the temple authorities, he said, I'm going to tell you about someone you don't know. And then, then John said with the very same word for no, he said, I didn't know him either. I didn't recognize him twice, he says in this passage. I didn't know him. And then he says, I beheld, I saw, God said. How did John come to know what was true with Jesus, true of Jesus with sufficient authority to boldly proclaim those truths to everyone else? Well, it wasn't because of John's uncanny gift of discernment. A while after this, John was struggling mightily with whether this was really the guy. He was just like all the rest of the Jews. John was struggling hard with why this one that's supposed to be the Son of God would allow men to oppose him so vigorously, to ridicule him. He was supposed to come and set up the kingdom of God on earth. What gives? His authority didn't come from his discernment. His authority didn't come from His ironclad logic. His authority didn't even come from the quality or quantity of His own faith. His authority came from the testimony of God. How did John come to know the things that he proclaimed about Jesus Christ? Well, he said twice in this passage again, he didn't recognize Jesus until until 
God the Father and God the Holy Spirit said, this is the one. John's assignment was to bear witness to God's witness. And that's our assignment, to bear witness to God's witness. To say to lost men, look, this is the one that God says is the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one that God told us would baptize men in the Holy Spirit. Your authority to confidently proclaim Jesus Christ to others as the Son of God and Savior doesn't come from you. You're not here to establish your credentials. You're not here to tell people what you believe. You're here to tell people what God has said about His Son. Unfortunately, many Christians depart badly from that very straightforward basis of authority and they try to replace it with some other basis. And there is no other basis. Your qualification to proclaim Jesus is not your superiority of speech. It's not your persuasive words of wisdom. It's not your mastery of apologetics. It's not even your extensive knowledge of the Bible. John the Baptist was the son of a Levitical priest. Do you think he didn't grow up knowing the Bible? But he didn't recognize Jesus until God told him who Jesus was. Please don't get me wrong. The whole Bible is the testimony of the Holy Spirit to the Son of God. But the only way that I came to recognize Jesus was because... The Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, He's the one. Through the Word? Absolutely. But it's the work of God. It's the work of God that persuades a soul that this is the one. It's not your work. It's not your words. The only thing that qualifies you to speak to others about Jesus is the witness of God. All three persons of the Trinity to the Son of God. Even Jesus says later in John 5.31, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony isn't true. And then he goes on and sets out four reliable witnesses. We'll look at that when we get to it. Our triune God has clearly declared who Jesus is and has told us what His incarnation, life, death, and resurrection accomplished. The witness that we bear to others is simply God's witness to His Son. And because of the absolute trustworthiness of God's testimony concerning His own Son, we get to proclaim Jesus Christ without apology and without equivocation. Our message comes with absolute authority. Is that how you think of the message that you bear to men. It comes with absolute authority. It is more certain than the rising of the sun tomorrow. This is a big deal, beloved. You and I are here to be witnesses of God's witness. It doesn't mean we don't get to talk about what God has done in us. Paul certainly did, Galatians 1 and 2. 
But see, what God has done in us is part of God's witness to His Son. He, he transforms those whom He redeems. And He says, look, see, further evidence. <laughs> I want to wrap up by coming back to John's own true focus here. His focus is most assuredly not on himself, although there's much that we have to learn from looking at John's life and John's ministry. His focus is the one he was sent to proclaim, and he must be our focus as well. There's an amazing passage in Micah chapter 6. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. It begins at, at verse 6. The prophet Micah poses a question for the ages. He says, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? And then listen to this question. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then Micah gives us an answer from God. He says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love loving kindness and to walk humbly with your God. But beloved, if that's God's whole answer, we got a big, big problem. Because just like you and me, Israel did not do justice. They did not love loving kindness and they did not walk humbly with their God. God told us what His holy character requires of us, but just like Israel and Judah, we didn't do it because we couldn't do it. But God provided for us the way out of the condemnation that we all deserved from His hand, every one of us. The next chapter, Micah 7, starting at verse 18, says this, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness. You know what he said he requires of us? He delights in loving kindness. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. How did God tread our iniquities underfoot? God answered for Himself the question for which we had no answer. Sinful man says to God, Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And God says, No! One sinner cannot atone for the debt of another, another sinner. The most costly offering that you could give to, ever give to me would be the life of your firstborn son, but that won't cut it. And by the way, that's what God told Abraham He was requiring of him. God says, no, that won't cut it. It has to be my firstborn son. In Jesus Christ, God says to man, I present my firstborn son for your rebellious hearts. I sent My beloved Son, My only Son, the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God from heaven to earth to pay for your sins. 
to redeem your lost and dead soul. God says to us, Behold my Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you are here this morning and you have not taken God at His Word, if you have not believed His witness concerning His Son, take Him at His Word today. Let today be the day of your salvation, that believing you may have life in His name. Dear Father, make us faithful witnesses to the marvelous light, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's in His incomparable name that we pray. Amen.